0: Welcome to the Opioid Voices Podcast. I'm Amanda Hiraishi, the Executive Producer. Opioid Voices is part of the American Opioid Project, a crowdsourced encyclopedia of the opioid crisis that will help the public understand how the crisis was experienced in all 50 states from a variety of perspectives. Share your story today by visiting www.americanopioid.org. The following interview is with Dr. Louis Singer, a licensed clinical social worker and professional interventionalist. This interview was conducted by Jamal Khan and took place on September 13, 2018.
1: Dr. Sanger. Hi, Dr. Singer. Hi. Uh, uh, tell me about yourself, tomorrow. What do you do? Uh, so uh just a quick uh sort of summary of my background. Uh I actually have a legal background. I went to law school and uh after that I did a fellowship in Washington, DC for the federal government. And uh it was the Presidential Management Fellowship. Uh and so for oh, part of- wow. Uh, so it was, uh, it was a great uh, experience, and for part of that, I worked on opioid policy issues for the White House Office of Intergovernmental Affairs during the Obama administration. How and uh, so it was just that was sort of my first real uh, substantive introduction to the topic. And so after the fellowship was over, I continued to sort of meet up on the crisis and follow it, and the more that... I learned, the more fascinated I became. And so my podcast is designed to help members of the public understand the crisis, uh, its origins, its consequences, and the various approaches that are now being taken to alleviate it and to save lives. Uh, so that's sort of the, the main objective of the, this podcast that I'm doing. and. Uh, um, yeah.
2: So is that your full time job?
1: Um. So that's uh. I'm. This is more of a passion project. So this is something that uh, I'm currently doing on my own. But my hope hope is that as it it uh sort of becomes more high profile, then I can receive some kind of institutional support or some kind of outside funding, maybe through a grant or something like that. Uh, but right now uh, it's just something I'm doing on my own. Oh well,
2: wonderful. That's so pretty terrific. where did you go to law school?
1: Uh, so I did my undergrad at Berkeley, and then I did my law school at Harvard.
2: Wow! So did you ever go to um, any of the leadership study things, like with hypers and stuff? Leadership study. Um we didn't like no Leadership is no easy answer. That's a good book for this. The other one that would be good is Crucial Conversations, which is the best-selling um, MBA book. Uh-huh. Um, just because I once, you
1: know, I was
2: a professor once and um long time ago. But anyhow, let's get started with the podcast.
1: How can I help you? Uh, sure. So I guess, um, you know, I've been, uh, part of the podcast has been, you know, interviews with, you know, individuals who have been working amidst the crisis in various capacities uh, in order to help sort of shine a light on the people who uh, have firsthand experience uh, and who can sort of share their experiences and, and wisdom and so on. And uh, so I guess uh, just uh, before I start off with the interview, uh, is it okay if I record? Sure. Okay, great. Um, so I guess first it would be helpful for our audience if you briefly described sort of your role and the work you do that pertains to the opioid crisis.
2: Um, well, my name is Dr. Louise Stanger. I'm a licensed
1: clinical social worker.
2: I have been um, a fa- both faculty and administrator at various universities, both public and private. As a licensed clinician since 1973, my interest has been in two arenas. One is the one that you're very interested in, and that is the addiction field, and by that I mean substance misuse, process disorders, chronic pain, um, which of course has a lot to do with the opioid crisis and sudden death, which also want to stuff to think about, it has a lot to do with the opioid crisis since 155 people die each day from an opioid overdose um, with the epidemic or global pandemic, which we are now experiencing. Clinically, I do several different things. Um, I work with families whose loved ones are present with mental health, substance abuse, process disorders and um, chronic pain and helping them find the treatment that they must need. Um, I also am a trainer, educator, and keynote presenter. I present all over the country, Um, and I am an author and a blogger. I'm excited to say that Rutledge, which you'll know is a textbook house, um, came to me, and the first textbook, it's called The Definitive Guide, Addiction Interventions, Collective Strategies is coming out on September 26th. I do have a lot of Huffington, Thrive Global blogs, Journal of Alcohol Studies, et cetera. And as a researcher or a PI, I've had about $5 million worth of NIH, NIAA, or Department of Education grants dealing with um, alcohol prevention or actually more globally community prevention. I'm a mom, I'm a grandmother, I love, I'm love. i an adventurer, um, I love uh, Soul Cycle, I recently traveled to Bhutan, which I think is very interesting when we take a look at um, global issues, and I'm just actually honored and delighted to be with you today.
1: Okay, great. Uh, no, thanks so much for that uh, great introduction. Uh, I guess, in the course of your, you know, decades of clinical work, uh, what was the single most memorable experience you had, whether it was something you observed or something that you heard someone say that stuck with you?
2: I think it's um, a chapter that I named in my first book called "Falling Up, which is a memoir. Um, and it's really a philosophical stance or a theoretical approach. Nothing changes till something changes in the world of addiction, which is a disease i people experience substance abuse, they experience a process disorder, disordered eating, gambling, sex, um digital um they experience chronic pain. People though are much more than their disorder. I have come to believe that however you define family, albeit naval family, albeit um, business associates, that nothing will really change with that person that experiences that disease unless the people, places, things around them
1: change. Okay. Okay, so it's... it's, uh, So like a larger change and
2: yeah, toxic and someone, environment. someone who experiences a substance misuse disorder, or I'm sure you're familiar with the ASAM definition of addiction, March 2011. If you're not, please give your readership that. Hmm. But we know that addiction is a brain disease. It changes, it changes the way our brain sees us. It changes the way we think. So it is chronic pain, et cetera. But the people around us unwittingly, unconsciously help facilitate um our diseases, and unless they begin to change um is uh, the person who's experiencing this stands little chance. You asked me about a more memorable experience, and I think this year I was prompted to write a article which was published in London about grief in families. And the reason what prompted me is I had a family who really did the best that they could do with their loved one. And their loved one um, first had a overdose, I don't know how many times, but one was given Narcan and then went back out again and finally eventually overdosed and had a heart attack and died. And I realized that if there are a minimum of 155 loved ones dying every day. If you take that times 10 or even 20, because how many people are, have been affected, there are so many people that are affected by the deaths of an opioid epidemic. And guess what? We don't have any services for that, except for funeral directors of, or are going to the morgue. And to me, Mm -hmm. That became such a riveting point where I realized that we must do a better job not only on the front end preventing death, but when death occurs, how can these faceless, nameless, wounded people get the help that they need?
1: Yeah, that's a really uh, good point. I know that a lot of news articles about the opioid crisis focus on Statistics like overdose deaths and the economic cost of the crisis, and they oftentimes don't include sort of the larger sort of repercussions and consequences, especially for you know, the family members and close friends of the loved ones who uh, have unfortunately uh, died of an overdose. Uh, how do you think we can increase awareness of you know these other you know members of our population? Uh, who are going through, you know, this kind of intense grief?
2: Well, I think we need to realize that sudden death is, um, and this is usually a sudden death, mm-hmm. is a special phenomenon that we really need to train funeral directors. I think they're really key. Um, people who work, um, and policemen who come to the scene of the, the, scene of the death Um, we need and we need to have outreach workers that can work with these families. These families are not the ones that are going to go to very traditional things such as hospice, which is really long-term debt. We need to be able to develop a support group or a chat room in today's day and age, which allows families who are grieving to have um, that kind of help. And we need to train schools. Our graduate schools are really have a paucity of information on natural disaster or sudden death, and uh, really the opioid epidemic appears to be a natural disaster.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think makes the opioid epidemic, uh, I guess, different from you know previous the drug epidemics? Um,
2: that's a great question because when you look at the figures, we know that we have a losing trifecta and I refer you to the Huffington post that I wrote about a losing trifecta. Yeah. We have so many people, um, it takes longer to die from alcoholism. But one out of every three families in the United States is affected by alcohol. And we see alcohol as somewhat normative, okay, because it's legalized. And we're about to have, I will bet, um, I'll go out on a limb, we are going to have a losing trifecta with marijuana as well. Now, people will argue that marijuana in and of itself doesn't cause death, but it can lead to psychosis. It can lead to schizophrenia. And there is the governor's drug driving report which is done by the Pacific Institute of Research and Evaluation, which demonstrates that when you have drug driving, i.e. marijuana driving, you tend to have more car accidents. In fact, some of the states that have legalized that have. But I think what's so outstanding are the sheer numbers of opioid how the opioid epidemic started, um, which came from um, really 2002, um, you worked for the Obama um, administration, but I'm sure you know that on October 31st, 2002, President Clinton, who was well-meaning at the time, set into motion in all emergency rooms and doctor offices that you had to, um, on a scale of 1 to 10, you had to announce what your pain is. Now, we know that pain is often seen as the fifth vital sign, The pain is subjective. Your 10 may be my 7. My Mm -hmm. 10 may be your 1. At the same time, it's all long been discussed right now in the public eye, the Sackler family had been developing um, opioids, and they were giving them out, but nobody understood quantity or frequency. Mm -hmm. So... Have you ever found yourself in the ER room? Yes. Okay, for a broken arm. So in 2002, if you had found yourself in an ER room, and maybe you hurt your shoulder, or maybe you had back pain, or maybe you fell off a ladder and you ended up with neck pain, or maybe you were like me, you had knee replacement surgery. You might have at that point been given opioids and said, here, take them. But then next week you come back and you say, Hey, you know what, Doc? I'm still in pain. Well, nobody really understood quantity or frequency. So if I gave you one to take every six hours and you come back and you say, you know what, my pain's still at a ten, um, I may then be able to I will then give you, say, take two every four hours. And um I would have to go the University of Arkansas did some great research on how many opioids you need to be at risk for um, dependency. Mm -hmm. And I believe that if you have more than seven, ten days of opioids, you have a 10% or 20% chance of becoming addicted given all other things. So we had a perfect storm, so to speak. Uh,
1: I guess in light of Sort of what happened there and, you know, pain being viewed as a cis vital sign and, you know, having sort of a a subjective uh, view, you know, view of the patient. Uh, In your, from your perspective, what is the ideal doctor patient relationship with regard to pain management?
2: Well, I think you have to decide what your definition of pain is and chronic pain, what acute pain is versus chronic pain. You know, there is a wonderful book called Pain is Strange, which is um, written by a guy from London. But in short, acute pain, most tissues heal within 90 days. However, uh, a brain tricks us into thinking uh, Our brain is really not our friend. What happens is we become attached to the pain, and so then our brain is sending us signals. With opioids, I'm sure that... Have you already discussed with your readership about hyperalgesia? Uh,
1: not very much, no.
2: Okay, so let me just go back. Just hold on one second. I just want
1: to make,
2: give you... Hyperalgesia is, after a while... First of all, we know that... Chronic pain affects over 133 Americans or over one-third of our population. And The annual cost of chronic pain is $635 million. It's more common among women than men, more common among older people. It's the number one cause of long-term disability. So concussions, facial pain, I just want to enunciate what it could be. Neck pain, accidents, hips, knees, um and it could be low back pain, osteoarthritis, rheumatoid, migraines, fibromyalgia, pelvic pain, carpal tunnel syndrome. There's some studies which will say trauma, sexual trauma, really gets related to fibromyalgia and other kinds of things. Um, there's low back pain, facial pain, and um, but what exactly is chronic pain? Pain that lasts longer than 12 weeks. And for the most part, that pain has been treated in terms of body parts. And today, scientists are rethinking what actual chronic pain is. Um, So when we talk about that, that's something that's taken longer than three months for healing, but it may be that someone's on opioids. The cause may not be clear because acute pain, the cause is really clear. Um, Effects on behavior can be subtle and hard to understand. And with chronic pain, meds are only partially affected because there's multiple approaches that are needed. And the, with chronic pain, the side effects of treatment become harder to tolerate over time and interfere with normal functioning. So what happens is that our brain, and if we're taking opioids, we now are addicted to the opioids, and we have something called hyperalgesia. So if you take pain pills probably for 10, 10, 12, 15 days, you now have a chance of being addicted to the opioid. You'll know this because all of a sudden you're in pain, but you're, your hand might stand on end. It's called hyperalgesia. And over time, what happens is your brain now becomes attached to sending you pain signals, but it's not from the, the what caused it. It's because you now have become addicted or attached to chronic pain. We talk about that as an attachment disorder. We also talk about that when we talk about um, attachment to um, drugs or alcohol. People become attached to the alcohol drug, it's, and so they're craving. So that's what happens with chronic pain. Uh And the other thing that happens with quarantine is anxiety and depression, as well as all your relationships change, because now you're spending more and more time saying what you can't do, um, what's bothering you and um, you really have it. So a lot a lot of times when we see people who experience chronic pain, we see them as also having a substance abuse problem. We see them with anxiety and depression, which is mental health, and we may see them with some sort of process addiction or other, and they may also have had some legal problems as a result.
1: I see. So it's almost like... You know, the chronic pain over time leads to these other problems with substance abuse and then other consequences.
2: Yes, and what happens is families feel really awful, okay? They feel really terrible, and they identify that the person is sick. Why? Because they keep going to doctors. In fact, what is it? Ninety two percent of all MRIs don't reveal anything, but they might go from doctor to doctor. They may they may and and physicians, you know, were trained. Well, if it doesn't fit and I want a pill, I need a more pill. Or they may be doctor shopping, or they may be buying over the um counter. Um, if you want, I later on I can give you case examples of of a chronic pain. Uh
1: Patients uh-huh. yeah. so I think I know that with uh you know there have been concerns that I know, with efforts to cut down on opioid prescriptions uh some people are concerned that the pendulum could swing too far the other way and could have uh, an adverse effect on patients who, let's say, have debilitating pain who could benefit from some pain relief? uh, What's the best way to strike a balance between the two?
2: Well, first of all, I think you need to have, um, there needs to be centralized um, pharmaceutical pharmacies So if I'm suddenly living in the desert and I go over to CVS and I, you know, get a prescription, but then I go over and I ask another doctor or I go online, how does anybody know how many I have? The other thing is if I'm, you know, if I have glaucoma, if I'm dying of cancer, certainly if I have ALS, New Gehrig's disease, um certainly um those things are appropriate. I don't think anything is going overboard. I think that right now you have to take a look and you have to do a good family history. Tell me about your family. Learn about if there's a predisposition to an ism. Learn about like what is what is it that, you know, what is really chronic pain. Are you now attached to the pain, or do you really have something wrong with you that that demands attention? For a year and a half, I had the privilege of consulting at a chronic pain facility and actually created a family program for that facility. And I had opportunity to work with numerous people um, who would come in, and their pain levels would probably be off the chart. Um, I can remember, um, one, and they had been in multiple treatment centers, so they had done things that really violated their um, standards. For example, one was a physician's wife. She had a lot, she needed a sit in her back. She had a lot of low back pain. But she had taken, and she had become addicted to all the pain pills, so much so that she was writing prescriptions. Off of her husband's um, pad in triplicate, which stood a chance for him to lose his license and for her to go to jail. The system was very kind to her and allowed her to go to treatment instead. Where she spent about six, six or six, six or six, eight months there, so that she can learn how to live life. She can learn pain's not going to completely go away, but you can do mindfulness. Might, there's there's about seven different things that are really, really helpful with chronic pain. the least of them is medication, okay? Another gentleman that I remember so much, um, we'll call him Doug. He had been in eight treatment centers before he got there. The doctor said he needed back surgery. The doctor, he was not available. At the time, his mother was dying of cancer. And so there were a lot of opioids and lots of different pills that she could take from her he had little children, he had a beautiful three-year-old little daughter that he wasn't available for because he was always high. And he had been already, had a history of substance misuse, had a history of multiple doctors, of multiple things wrong with the back. And let me tell you, I watched him climb up high through high ropes, because he saw, and I watched him so he can go to a 12-step meeting every day now, and I watched him learn techniques, whether it was mindfulness, whether it was meditation, whether it was breathing, whether it was, you know, yoga, whether it was chiropractor, whether it was acupuncture, whether it was cognitive behavioral therapy, be a different person so he can be present to his loved ones today. Um. I've seen people who you would have written off completely and said there's no way they could get up and walk. I think one of the most wonderful ones was a wonderful woman I met who had two knee replacements, two shoulder surgeries, and something else. And she was totally, absolutely not present for the world. She looked ugly. Her hair was ragged. And really, she had her daughter's wedding coming. And she had been this way, and her husband was a medical professional, and she'd been this way for 10 or 12 years. And it was really not, and, and what she learned to do was one of the things that was very attractive to her when she was younger, because when you do a pain assessment, you find out what people like to do before, was go canoeing. And keeping people moving is probably the most important thing to do, along with all the other modalities, making sure they can move and move as much as they can. And she had said, I love to canoe, and I can remember as a young girl. Well, we just talked in between the spaces, and it was the entire team there that made such a difference with her. But lo and behold, four weeks later when I came back, she had gone canoeing, and she was walking around the property. This was a woman that could not get up and walk.
1: Wow.
2: And so when you take away, people will reveal once they're medically detoxed, they'll come in, they'll be on a scale of one to ten, their pain is going to be ten, twelve, but after, after several days of detox, they're going to have a lower pain threshold. And then they have to learn how to relive life, and their families have to learn how to relive life because they're so used to coddling them to giving them the bailouts. Mm-hmm. I, if I sound passionate, it's because I
1: you know, hate uh, that. No, no, I can definitely tell. Uh, to see, yeah, I just how those... taking those steps can completely, you know, transform someone's life and their life outcome. Um, I think... Uh, I know that you've done a number of uh, interventions, like family interventions. Mm -hmm. And I know that, uh, you know, I know there there may be cases where, you know, the family members uh, are aware that there's a problem, but their loved one, who the intervention is for, may not necessarily be ready to acknowledge that there's a problem, or even if they acknowledge it, they may not necessarily be ready to, uh, I guess, uh, pursuit uh, help, professional help. Uh, I guess in, in situations like that, uh, I guess how do you sort of approach the intervention in a way that makes them willing to reach out and get help?
2: Well, I think that you have to do it compassionately and caring and you have to believe in an invitational approach, not a surprise. These are wounded people and so are their loved ones. Um, and some of their loved ones aren't willing for it. Not, don't want them to get help either So because once you change one part of the system, you change the status quo. I mean, I use a very particular methodology that I have developed, um, which obviously, if you want, you can really, it's really extrapolated in the book that's coming out um, September 26th, but I like to learn... Everything I can about the what I call the identified loved one, and that's not an original term; others use that as well. Uh-huh. And what I try and do is, it's really heart, hurt, and hope. So what I do is, I interview all the participants of the intervention team, and I ask each special individually. And the reason I do that is, you can get a lot more in- information when you interview individually than if you put it in a group. And I ask them, what's special about this person? What, what they, they weren't always like this. What makes what made your heart sing? specific examples? And what's the tipping point? Um, what brought you to give me a call? Because people don't call me unless their hearts are hurting. They don't call interventionists unless they really don't know what to do. They've yelled, they've screamed, they plotted, they've nagged, and they don't know what to do. And then... What is it that you've experienced? And then understand that you can break into the conflict. I, I use the word confabulation instead of denial that everybody has, and you're inviting someone to change. You're inviting someone to come to yes. Um, and for people like myself, um, the word no is, only, is, is really considered just a, a conversation starter. A colleague of mine once shared with me, Eskimos have a thousand words for snow. We hear a thousand words for no, and yes, you know, you're leaving, you'll you'll be going to treatment. So you just have to go in with a mindset of yes. You have to go in with a way to break into that interior through love and compassion. Um, I just did it. Um, an invitation to change. This past weekend, and the person does experience chronic pain, and really they were they were in tears after they heard their loved ones speak and so lovingly about them and 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 we're ready to go. Is every intervention in the world easy? absolutely not, but there's a lot of footwork that goes into them um as a licensed clinician, I can understand really everyone else because I can assess the team because sometimes the team may have a saboteur and you may have to invite them to lead. Um, The other thing is matching people for the right treatment. Not all treatment centers are alike, and certainly not all websites are truthful in this day and age of behavioral health. And then you have to also consider how much money does this family have that they're able to give. Are they insurance dependent? Do they have no money? So there's a lot of factors that go into not just doing an intervention, but picking the right treatment center. And then the most important ingredient as well is to what extent will this center or will I continue working with with the family so that they can get the help they need?
1: Yeah, it's interesting that uh, what you were mentioning—that some of their close family oh, yeah. members, you you said, may may also not want them to pre treatment, or might be there might be a saboteur in the group. Uh, well, just uh, think
2: about it. It's sorry. not that they mean to, but unconsciously, everybody has identified this is the problem person, right? Mm-hmm. They're there for the grace of God's God, do But in, when you look at family history. You're going to find trauma in other people. You may also find that they also may be abusing a substance. Maybe it's not opioids. Maybe it's alcohol. That, but, but if I'm considered the perfect person or the perfect child, and my brother or sister is really the one that has the problem, if he gets well or she gets well, what happens to my family position? hmm So you have to really be able to understand that. And then what happens to the mom who, um, you know, every day she had a reason for living that she made the food or she put the pills in the box. And now all of a sudden she doesn't have that role anymore, even though she hated that role, so she said. So unconsciously people identify, around unidentified loved ones. And so all their behaviors get to be switched.
1: I see. Right, so this kind of a, uh, this, so it's like being an interventionist, uh, you know, it's a world that requires, I guess, not just, you know, working with a substance abuse disorder and mental health and so on, but it can expand to these other sort of, I guess, psychological factors and, Interpersonal yes. factors and so on.
2: I mean that's why I'm excited that I wrote that Rutledge came to me and I'm writing a textbook. I mean, my hope is, my intent is that it gets adopted by graduate schools like social work, MFT, even law schools. Um that it is a living document with an e book because there has been nothing written for academia before. And a lot of people, I mean, interventions come in all shapes and sizes, all backgrounds. There's only a certification, um, not a license. And I'm not saying that there are some really, really fabulous folks in the field and I make mention of them. But I really think, I really believe having a clinical background when you're working with these multi complex families is a must. Mm-hmm. It's not as simple as getting someone from A to B.
1: And with these interventions, do you find that you have to do follow-ups over time to sort of?
2: Yeah, so I will I have. I'm sort of persnickety, but I won't work with a family unless they agree to, um, you know, some solution-focused coaching as part of the um as part of the um expert, as part of the agreement, I'm not interested anymore because I know that if we don't follow up over time, the change has, it, what is evidence based change takes between sixty six and ninety days, so that means or everybody has to change. And if you're not willing to work over time, I think that or you think that you can send someone for 30 days and it's sort of a spin drive and everything's going to be all better and you don't have any back work with is really important to them. Mm-hmm. I don't think it works. And I think we need a really, you know, on a on a public level, we can set up centers. We can set up massive centers where there are family programs run, where, where people have an opportunity to succeed.
1: And uh, are these uh, these interventions? These almost always happen, I guess, in person, where you're.
2: Well, I, you know, I have m- most of them are done in person. Although I've been able to coach, you know, people don't understand how incredibly resourceful they are, okay. and I have coached many families over the phone um because they wanted to do it themselves. I mean there's an old social work added that you've got to start where your client is sure. and join up. Um, you know, I think it's possible to be to coach. I think there's 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 certain ingredients. Um recently I did a intervention on a wonderful, wonderful family who had a Sort of a fifty-seven-year-old male, and they were, they were, they were culturally that that was really important to them to do it on their own. And you know what? They followed directions, and they were very successful. Um, you know, it is quite possible. It just depends on who the person is and what the situation is. But I think professionals. Coaching is really important in that venue. And if I'm not the right person, I know lots of people that could be the right person for that family.
1: And you know, I can imagine that you know some of these families, you know, I would guess, you know, they you know, they live in a suburb, they have what's considered, you know, a middle class Kind of uh, background, mm-hmm. and and I know a lot. In a lot of cases, there may be a sense of you know disbelief that you know, you know there can be a bit of a stigma surrounding substance abuse disorders. You know, they may think like, how, you know, how could this happen to someone in my family? Where because like in the media it's usually depicted that it happens to people who are kind of, uh, I guess, on a, have, take, have made certain life decisions and so on. Uh, so I yeah. guess. Uh, I guess, uh, that is
2: by far the biggest myth of the century, one out of every three families, so you can just take a round, are affected by um, by addiction, by alcoholism, by, uh, you know, whether it's drugs. And so, the and that's why, you know, in 1954, we didn't have the American Society of Addiction Medicine. We didn't have American Society for of psych- Psychiatry that specialized in addiction. Um, 1954, we just had that, you know, addiction, alcoholism is a disease. It's a disease in the same way that heart disease and diabetes. And we thought like it's a stigma, like someone should be able to pull themselves up on their bootstraps. I don't care where I go. Sometimes I still experience that belief. Well, can't they just do that? People need to, I think there was a wonderful, wonderful article. It's um, I borrowed it from who was then the drug czar. Um, some of the work he wrote an article on words, words, words. And peep what are the right words to use to help decrease stigma?
0: Um,
2: and I think that's so important for everyone to know. It could happen to you. It can happen to anybody. Uh-huh. And 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 color, um, Race, economic status has little to do with that.
1: Right. It was interesting the analogy you made uh, with um, you know diabetes or heart disease. Uh, you know that these are you know it's, that it's commonly accepted that you know the patient who has these will go and you get the right treatment and. You know, and then that's it, right? Uh, whereas with,
2: And actually, uh, do you know what the most resistant disease to treat is in the United States? If you had to pick between um, addiction, heart disease, or diabetes, which one would you pick?
1: Um, yeah, I'm not sure. It's diabetes. Um, In fact,
2: there's a wonderful strategy called motivational interviewing, which was developed by Drs. Miller and Drs. Rolnick. Miller is a psychologist. Rolnick was an MD called motivational interviewing. How do we join up? How do we roll with someone's resistance? How do we essentially just yes? It's a strategy. And it was developed in hospitals with diabetics. It's used very effectively in... um, with um, people who experience a substance misuse disorder and chronic pain as well. And so what we need to do is get rid of this. People are much more than their substance misuse. They're much more than that. They're they're a person. They might be a mother. They might be a sister. They might be a brother, a husband. They could be a lawyer. They could be um, a bus driver. They could be a construction worker, um they can be students um they can they can be so funny, they can be talented, they can be a singer, they can be a dancer. People are much more than whatever that other label is, and people experience a substance misuse disorder, people experience chronic pain um but they are so much more and so when I work with people, I talk about people experiencing. I don't call anyone an alcoholic or an addict. That's a self-label that you get in a 12-step group, which is wonderful, but it's a self-label.
1: Yeah, I can imagine, yeah, that, that, yeah, these words and these terms, these descriptors, you know, the the connotation could have and the effect that they can have, uh, you know, they can be magnified in, term, in terms of, you know, whether someone uh, even wants to get treatment or not, uh, depending on how that makes them feel. Um, mm-hmm. I guess in any other respect, uh, was there anything that you came across in the, cor- in the course of your clinical work that changed your perspective on the opioid crisis?
2: Anything that changed my perspective on the... I think that we need... I mean, it's such a big problem and I still think I'm in... I think we need micro, meso, and macro solutions. Um, I think I have more questions than answers. Um, I hate the way we, in the United States, we go, oh, hi, guess what? We have an epidemic, but then... And then we rally, but then we really don't do anything. Um, I think there needs to be stuff actually done. I think there is a great need for affordable treatment, um, not just treatment for um, people of need. I think we need to um, do a lot of community education. That doesn't mean that we will allocate it to our schools. Um, I think we need to have open discussion about it and um, allow people to have their voice. I also think we have to have some massive funding um, in terms of what um, works. I think one of the sort of, and I think insurance (laughs) is not always our friends because they're dictating treatment um, in order to make money, not dictating treatment because they have some kind of thing work. And I also think um, I have a call out to the behavioral health care field. There has been an increase in treatment centers, but not all treatment centers are alike. Not all treatment centers are honest. I mean, if you call me up another time, we can talk about the ethics in the behavioral health care field. I mean, this is a billion-dollar business, but we, but they are in the business of trying to save people's lives. And they need to do it with qualified staff with the right kind of um uh really qualified staff with the right kind of treatment and to make this something that can really work not just take someone's money
1: right and i mean if somebody gave you a magic wand that <laughs> allo- that allowed you to you know change any policy or any rule in this space uh, to help more effectively alleviate the crisis, uh, which policy would you zero in on? (laughs) Oh,
2: my my God. I want to be visible, vocal, and visionary, and that's a big, big question. I love that question, Jamal. That leaves me almost speechless. Um, Access and availability policy for everything. I mean, I want to change access and availability of not just opioids, I want to change access and availability intensity and frequency on marijuana because I think access and availability, I mean I know the FDA came out today on vaping. Um, All these things can lead us down that path road to higher um, drugs which cause more things. I think there needs to be a discussion in every medical school. In every nursing school and every school of social work, how do we talk to our patients about opioids? What is it that we really get to do? And do we have enough time to actually spend with our patients besides the two minutes that we do it and so that's how they walk away with it? And now I understand that the Sackler family or the same producers are coming out with a less what is it? I, I just read it yesterday and sent it to you. They're oh, yeah. coming out okay. with a new pill. I mean, okay. a new pill to end the other pill, so that will be the pill, is not the answer. Mm-hmm. I think that people need to be tr- treated, in I, I would like everyone to to have a policy in the, how do we really treat chronic pain. Okay,
1: great. Uh, and speaking of, uh, you know, you know, the Sackler family, uh, what role or responsibility do you think pharmaceutical companies like Purdue should have in the efforts to alleviate the crisis?
2: Well, I think that everybody has an obligation to help alleviate this crisis. I mean, the Sackler company, the Sackler family made billions off of this without really knowing, um, you know, marketing. I mean, long has gone the day of when I was a physician and I got free trips, free trips, I got free everything. Um, You know, I was able to get everything that I wanted. I think they have an obligation, as every pharmaceutical company is, to be careful. I think that we need sub advertising on television, to be quite honest with you. Have you ever looked at the T V shot? I mean, you can get cured from everything, but do you ever listen to the side effects? Really
1: right. Right.
2: I mean, we have billboards. I can I can save you, this can save you. I think there has to be some kind of advertising um regulations. And I think they have to take a, they they actually have to I what was it, Macklemore? You know, Macty has the famous song about drug dealers. But it wasn't just they gave a vehicle. Um, I think everybody in the beginning didn't know what they were doing, so they did the best that they could do. But now we know differently. And so we don't need big pharma. We don't need individual physicians. We don't need the, um, we have a big black market now because when you run out of pills, heroin, fentanyl, is on the street that's doing that's a killing field altogether. Um, and then you have to go to distribution where you're getting this stuff from. So it, it's almost, um, sort of astronomical. But your question was should the pharmaceutical company, yes, they should, but they so should a lot of other people. Okay. Um, <laughs> and I what, think, I uh,
1: think.
2: Yeah, I, I guess why I couldn't they be taxed like the cigarette industry is taxed.
1: And then the money is going for treatment.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't mean, Jamal, you're the expert in policy. What do you think?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it's... Uh, I think uh, I, I largely... Um, you know, I, I know that there's been some you know, litigation uh, that's been taking, you know, place, uh, some legal action, uh, you know, and if they can, if that can move forward and they, you know, the states uh, can get some funds, then, you know, that could also be, I guess, a source uh, that can be used to help individuals who have opioid use disorder and help them get treatment and so on, Um, provided that the money is that they recover is actually used for, you know, that purpose and not just used for other policy priorities by different states because, uh, I know that with the cigarette companies, something like that happened where they did get a big settlement, um, but then not all of it was used to help people who were dealing with the health consequences of cigarettes. Uh, some of it was used for just other things, just to plug a gap in a state budget and things like that. And so, uh, hopefully, uh, if a settlement does happen here, uh, it will actually be used to uh, help the people who are, uh, you know, who have been adversely affected by the opioid crisis. Um, So that's sort of my thoughts on that. Um, I think, uh, let's see, I think that's all the prepared questions I have. Uh, Were there any additional thoughts or ideas that you would like to share?
2: No, I just want to say thank you for being um uh open, for being visible, vocal and visionary and for tackling this. Um happy that you are doing this and any way I can contribute, I would be
1: honored to do so. Okay. Well great. Um, uh, you know, you so much. And you know, your responses have been super informative and, and and I know that our audience will have a lot to learn from that. So uh, you know, thank you so much for you know taking the time, um, you know, to share your knowledge and wisdom on this you know crisis that's affected all fifty states.
2: So, well, I'm so honored to be part of you, and I and I will appreciate. Let me have your link, and I will share it with the world, my world, anyhow. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, okay, great. Um, okay, thanks so much, and uh, so I'll be in touch.
2: Thank you okay thanks thank you very much Jamal.
1: bye-bye thank you goodbye
0: thank you for listening to the opioid voices podcast i'm amanda hiraishi the executive producer opioid voices is part of the american opioid project a crowdsourced encyclopedia of the opioid crisis that will help the public understand how the crisis was experienced in all 50 states from a variety of perspectives. Share your story today by visiting www.americanopioid.org.